0: This week marks what we would call the Passion Week. It's a typical week when Christians will take the opportunity to reflect on our Savior, Jesus Christ. Most notably, we will look towards the crucifixion of Christ, that brutal moment of his death on the cross. And then, of course, next Sunday, we'll come back here and celebrate his resurrection, the point when Jesus victoriously overcame death. This moment, this event, is celebrated by many different ways in the culture. Christians will celebrate by remembering Christ's life. Some Christians will celebrate by simply remembering Christ's death. Some will celebrate the day by remembering who they want Christ to be. Others will gather in a day of celebration and forget Christ altogether and then others will treat it simply as another day. The variety of traditions indicates that there's a variety of theologies about Christ. While some completely proclaim the deity of Christ, others will completely deny the existence of Christ. And then in between that, you have a whole huge range of beliefs about who Christ is. Some will say that Jesus was simply a man, maybe even a good man, Others will call him a partial God, as we talked about last week. With so many varying views, it's easy to get confused and convoluted. And so this morning I want us to place our gaze on the Christ, the Messiah. It's my desire this morning that we will find the sufficiency of our theology in the sufficiency of Christ. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, and I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Sacrifice of the Wrong Kind, Living in Christ Fullness. I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. For the sake of understanding, I'm going to backtrack and begin reading in verse 6, because it adds context to what we're studying this morning. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, the word of God reads, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, all our trespasses by canceling the record of dead that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him verse 16 therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You may be seated. (coughs) A flawed systematic theology will lead to a flawed practical theology. In other words, belief influences behavior. Yesterday, I was reading Karl Marx because I'm sure that's what everybody does in their free time. <laughs> At the introduction of this particular edition, this particular book, which was written about the time of 2003, the author brings to mind the various atrocities throughout history and specifically fixates on the year of 2001. He writes, on September eleventh, two thousand one, terrorists attacked the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington D.C., killing thousands of people. How could anyone justify such an act? On June eleventh, two thousand one, Timothy McVeigh was executed for blowing up the Alfred P. Murray Federal Office Building in Oklahoma City. To his death, <coughs> McVeigh said his actions were justified. A few Americans would agree with him whereas most would see him as a murderer. The author asks, how can there be such fundamental differences within one country? He then goes on and says in July 2001, same year, a young man was killed in Genoa, Italy, while protesting the G8 meeting. The leaders are certain that they are right and the protesters wrong. The protesters are certain that they are right and the leaders wrong. Why? the author concludes that it is a product of ideology, suggesting that these individuals were simply acting upon their belief, and those events then were the outcome of that belief. We know that to be true. Once again, it simply affirms the connection between belief and behavior. But I would take that a step further. I would tell you that it's not merely the result of their ideology, but a result of their theology. It's not just what people believe that influences them. It's what they believe about God. What we think about God will determine our actions and reactions. It will determine both the trajectory of our life and the tracks of that trajectory. If our God is the God of the Bible, what we believe and therefore what we do is not determined by who we are but by who God is. But if our God is self, what we believe and what we do is determined not by who God is, but by who we are. And so we must ask ourselves, are we self-reliant or are we God-reliant? We know that those who are self-reliant articulate their life based on the values that are important to themselves. So the activities that they will engage in will further those values. <clears throat> not only in their own lives, but ultimately in the lives of others. I think we see that in the culture around us. But those who are God-reliant, they will orchestrate their lives not around what is important to themselves, but what is important to God. Even more, they're not concerned about what, about what they're doing is merely in their own best interest, Instead, they calculate every move based on what is in the best interest of God. Although I would tell you that when you act in the best interest of God, you're acting in your own best interest as well. And so it's not merely their ideology, it's their theology. Theology combines doctrine and discipline. It combines faith and function. As we come to our text this morning, This very point is exemplified by Paul as he continues to offer judgment against the false teaching that is influencing the church in Colossae. In the previous passage, the one that begins in verse 6, the one we talked about last week, he has stipulated that professing believers, professing Christians, have no need to engage in the elementary principles of the world, these elementary principles of these false teachers, because instead Christ is sufficient while those elementary principles are insufficient. And now, here, beginning in verse 16, Paul continues that very critique. And at this time, he begins by explaining how bad theology <coughs> generates bad behavior. That their theology here is contrary to Christ and is carrying them to a lifestyle that is also contrary to Christ. Paul accuses them of denying the fullness of Christ and living in the emptiness of man. Placed before us in this text is the assessment of that false teaching. And while it is only one falsehood, I would tell you it's manifested with three distinctive traits. And each trait requires the followers to sacrifice something, something essential to their relationship with Christ. And so I want you to note first the sacrifice of legalism in verses 16 and 17. The sacrifices of legalism. Our text reads, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The false teachings here first resulted in a culture of legalism. As a means of salvation, legalism institutes a series of rules and regulations and forces obedience not to Christ, but to man's rules. In fact, it supplants the grace of God with the customs of man. Some commentators speculate that Paul is speaking here less about the connections of the Old Testament and instead is referring to the cultic practices of the regional groups in his area, something that the Gentiles indeed would have struggled with. But we've frequently seen over the last few months, as we've examined Colossians, that the false teaching here being propagated is (coughs) consistently filled with various elements of Judaism. Judaism. And so I think Paul's teaching makes it clear that he's not merely preaching against cultural cults of the day, but his teaching is more precise. He's suggesting to us that the false teaching is a mixture of both the Gnosticism, as we've talked about in the past, although it's not yet fully developed like it would be in the second century, and he com- the false teaching combines that with these elements of Judaism. Yet those various elements have been distorted by the false teachers. In this case, the Paul, Apostle Paul calls attention to two very specific aspects of Judaism that are being misused, and first he refers to food and drink. It seems that the false teachers are placing a misguided emphasis on the food and drink. and laying down his law through Moses, indeed, the The Lord calls upon people to be holy, and just as he is holy in doing so, he gives them these instructions, the people instructions, and tells them how to remain clean and pure. These instructions included not defiling themselves by eating anything that is unclean and abstaining from anything such as strong drink. We see this in Leviticus 10 and Numbers chapter 6. If you look at Leviticus chapter 11, you'll see this portion of these rules outlined as the whole chapter discusses what it means or what is unclean and what is clean food. But in verse 34, you find the combination of both food and drink mentioned. And there it refers to when it is both unclean for food and drink. A parallel passage occurs in Deuteronomy 14 if you want to look it up. The intricacies of this passage, of such passages, display the detail of the impossibility it is to maintain God's law and how it is we are incapable in our own sufficiency to remain holy before the Lord. Yet it was Christ himself who declared that these food regulations were unnecessary. In fact, these food regulations really have become nothing more than the traditions of the men something that Paul taught about or taught against in the previous verses last week that we looked at. He accuses the false teachers of taking people captive by philosophies according to the traditions of men. And so over the past several weeks, we've read from Mark chapter 7, where Christ is accused not of violating the law of God, but the greatest accusation that they can bring against Christ is that indeed he's violating the traditions of men. And if you follow that chapter, you'll see that in that same chapter, Christ addresses food specifically. And there he does something with this concept. He takes the law of God and makes it into nothing but the tradition of man. And how does he do that? By declaring that food is neither immoral or moral. If we look specifically at Mark 7, verses 17 through 19, the text reads, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? and is expelled, and thus he declared all foods clean. Indeed, in the past there were regulations about clean and unclean food, clean and unclean drink, but Christ now declares that unnecessary. As a side note, who can change God's law? Only God himself. So by giving these new provisions, Christ is showing himself to be God. Therefore, if Christ himself declares that these food regulations are irrelevant, then it is unreasonable for these false teachers to declare them relevant. Essentially, they are seeking to undo a decree from God himself. After the food and drink, the second area that Paul mentions here is Festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And once again, we see each of those listed in Old Testament practices. We know that the Lord Himself instituted the Sabbath in Genesis with His own day of rest. And then He called upon Israel to do the same. Leviticus 23 outlines the various feasts and the festivals to be celebrated, all as a means of honoring the Lord. And yet as the ultimate sacrifice, Christ once again fulfills this law of the Old Testament. And he nullifies the requirements for ongoing sacrifices. And yet here the false teachers seem to be asserting their relevance once again. The problem with these rules and these regulations is they extend further because they're being used by the false prophets, it says here, to make judgments against the people. That's the consequences of legalism. Legalism sacrifices the Christian's freedom in Christ. This is obviously a difficult concept to navigate because Paul says in Galatians 5.1, believers are free from the law. But then in verse 13, he also <coughs> reminds them that their freedom does not sever their obligation to Christ. In fact, in Romans chapter 14, he uses the same issue, food, to address the people and tell them how to restrain themselves on behalf of other Christians. But the legalist motivation here is outward conformity and not inward conversion. And so the result is judgment that will ensue, just based on those statutes. There's two issues with this. First, it's dangerous. One commentator notes, it is dangerously deceptive because inwardly rebellious people and disobedient Christians or even non-Christians can conform to a set of external performance standards. Second, it is divisive. Legalism causes believers to be overly critical based on man-made traditions rather than on God's truth. And so it causes conflict and division as a result. In both cases, rather than bring a person closer to Christ, they drive a person further from Christ. As Paul says in verse 17, these things are but a shadow. A shadow is merely a form of the real thing. It may point people to the real thing, but the shadow itself is nothing more than a representation and so the law is simply a shadow of Christ, meant to capture the attention of the believer and point him or her towards Christ. Hebrews 10.1 describes the law this way, saying, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The law itself is not good, but a representation of what is good inasmuch as it reflects the goodness of God. And that's the problem we see here in our text. That which is only a shadow is not the real substance of Christ. And yet that shadow is treated as though it is the substance of Christ. That's exactly what we see in legalism. It takes something that is meant to point to Christ and obscures it. Sacrificing the freedom of the Christian and making them slaves once again. Legalism sets the purposes of man above the promises of God. I want you to know, second, the sacrifice of mysticism in verses 18 and 19. The word of God reads, Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. We see now that the false teaching has taken the form of mysticism. First we saw legalism, now we see mysticism. The research of William Hendrickson reveals that the worship of angels was a problem in this particular region of the world, even long after Paul was there. Located close to Colossae was its sister city, Laodicea. In fact, it appears that this letter to the Colossians was also meant to be delivered to the church in Laodicea as well. Hendrickson, though, notes that in AD 363, the city of Laodicea played host to a church synod. And within these documents, it reveals that there were those on this very topic. And it goes so far as to quote this. It is not right for Christians to abandon the church of God and go away to invoke angels. So 300 years after Paul and yet the worship of angels is still an issue. We cannot be certain about the level of worship or the form of worship that was taking place during the era of Paul, only that Paul writes against it, and so it must be significant enough for him to address it. Perhaps it's simply speculation that overlooks God, or maybe it's turning itself into a completely new religious practice. We don't know. Regardless, it is so clearly entrenched in their ways that it continues for centuries later. Such a practice, though, is inconsistent with Colossians 1, 18 through 20, which declares that Christ is both the head of the church and the creator of all things, including angels. In fact, it seems odd that people would worship angels when, in fact, angels worship Christ. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 captures this. Captures the angels worshiping God by calling holy, holy, holy. Revelation 5:11 through 12 reads, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It is irrational to worship something or someone that itself is worshiping something else. Why is it necessary to worship angels when the angels are offering worship to Christ? Instead, it would be more reasonable, more rational to worship Christ directly. Additional concerns are raised by Paul with this phrase going on in detail about visions. The forcefulness of this tra- this statement is not revealed in our translation but the original text translates taking a stand on visions. That is that the false teachers are making claims that are unprovable. In fact, those visions seem to be the result of the asceticism and the pride mentioned in the text. We've seen that word multiple times. Asceticism is simply the punishment of self. They could take various forms, but usually it was associated with the physical acts of violence against one's own body. It forces one to become really a self-made martyr almost. Those engaged in this type of self-abasement were considered more godly, more pious. But Paul calls this a form of false humility because of the mention of food and drink in the previous verses. And then in verse 22 or 21, it says, Do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. Most understand that this form of aestheticism takes the form of fasting and withholding food and water. Not only was this considered a way to draw near to God, but it was thought that this was prepare somebody to receive divine revelation from God. In Ephesians 5.18, we have that phrase that says, do not become drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. This is an awkward statement because the connection between being drunk and being filled is not readily made clear until we realize what happens when somebody becomes drunk. They act in odd ways. They lose control, slurring speech. And to the outsider, it appears that they're under the influence of some sort of spirit. And so that's what people thought in that day, that to be under the influence of the spirit of God, you had to get drunk. In the same way, the fasting or the aestheticism here and visions are connected sleep deprivation, and the insufficient protein from food or lack of food are known to induce hallucinations. And it's likely that is what ta- is taking place here. Notice three characteristics of the false teacher that are identified in this text. First, the false teacher is simply acting upon his own will. We see this in Second Peter 3 as well. Second, they take a stand on things that are unprovable. And third, they have an inflated view of themselves. They're prideful. Heresy in this form of angel worship continues today. I have a friend who, while growing up as a pastor's son, he worked at the dollar store. And the most requested item that he was asked to help with was what? Those candles with the angels on them people, mostly professing religious people, needed help in determining which angel they should buy for their specific need. They would then, of course, go home and light the candle while saying their prayer and ask the angel to intercede on their behalf. It could be an angel for travel or finances or health or whatever it may be. Before we get too judgmental that we should realize that even amongst professing believers, Angel worship to some form sometimes takes place. Consider how often you hear the concept of guardian angels. Go look at our bathrooms. We paint little cherubs and put little smiles on their face and then hang them above our toilets. (laughs) Consider this, though. Do you want evidence that our view of angels is distorted? What gender are angels? Most depictions make them female, but in Scripture, mostly what you read are male. In fact, if you want a trick, some well, I guess if you want to spend some time, here's a question for you: Where in the Bible do you find that angels might even possibly be female? that will probably keep you busy for a while, and there is a place. My point being is that we look upon angels almost as we look at God, we being the general Christian community. But Paul's teaching doesn't end on this point. He calls the the reader's attention to the issue with these practices of mysticism and says they sacrifice the headship of Christ. Verse 19 reads, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Our God is a good God who will not withhold that goodness from his people. We saw that in our call to worship this morning, seeing God's character in his relationship with Israel. In Psalm 84:11, where it says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And of course, nobody can fulfill God's law to walk uprightly. But because he is a good God, God went so far as to provide a way for people to be justified through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That text certainly calls our attention to next week's celebration of the Resurrection Sunday. And yet bringing this charge against people from Paul is exactly, or not from Paul, what Paul is saying is that the false teachers are bringing this charge against the Colossians. And so he warns the Colossians, let no one disqualify you. Literally meaning do not let anyone act as an umpire against you. It's like a referee scoring a boxing match, but he unfairly disqualifies one of the boxers. That is what these false teachers are doing. But only Christ is the head of creation, it says in Colossians one fifteen, And only Christ is the head of church, it says in verse 18. And so only Christ has the right to disqualify or qualify someone for participation in the kingdom of God. Even more so, Paul writes in our text that from the head, the body works together and grows. And we know this not to be physically true, of course, but... God's intention here must have been to point believers to the fact that in order to grow spiritually, they must be connected to Christ. In fact, the phrasing actually says, with a growth that is from God. While legalism sacrifices freedom in Christ, mysticism sacrifices the headship of Christ. I want you to note, finally, the sacrifice of aestheticism. Reading the ending of chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, it says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all referring to things that will perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Already we've had the discussion on aestheticism, but here Paul brings it about more poignantly, pairing it with this phrase, severity to the body. He brings about the natural adversity of this action calling attention to the unjustified pain that is brought about by these physical actions. Paul points out two problems with this behavior. First, it is contrary to the one who has died to the elemental spirits of the world and is now alive in Christ. It says in verse 20, Paul says, since you have died with Christ, why do you still act as though you were alive with the world? That's, of course, my paraphrase. Contrary to what is being taught, these practices are not from God or for God. In fact, they are actually against God. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 15:19, when there he condemns those who follow the traditions of the elders rather than the will of God. The reality is, though, that they have died with Christ, and thus they have been separated from these elementary elements of the world. Therefore, they don't need to yield to these regulations, but they only need to yield to the headship of Christ. Indeed, there are times when self-discipline is important in certain areas, and sometimes it's even warranted or godly. Matthew chapter 4 elevates the role of fasting. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 discusses celibacy. Abstention for the right reasons can be a good thing. But when it is considered the means to holiness, then the conclusion is eventually you will have to avoid everything because it replaces Christ's sufficiency. A second problem with this behavior is found in verse 23. It doesn't produce the right outcome. Paul says that these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What is more difficult to give up the body or to give up sin. Alexander McLaren writes, any aestheticism is a great deal more to men's taste than abandoning self. They will rather stick hooks in their backs and do the, and this is his word, swinging puja, than give up their sins and yield up their wills. Ultimately, this physical abasement, this physical persecution of self, is unable to solve the problems of the human heart. And so it never will truly eradicate sin. Therefore, what we have is a man-made religion of aestheticism that sacrifices man's sanctification or man's holiness. While it gives the appearance of wisdom and godliness, it says here, it actually achieves the opposite. And so to turn towards this religion is actually to turn away from God and thus forego the ongoing work of Christ, and the ongoing work of salvation in the Christian life. It is considered noble to sacrifice to God. And so what people do is they look for these grand acts of self-denial by man for God. But in doing so, they overlook the grand act of self-denial by God for man. The same heresy, but it's manifested in three distinctive ways. Legalism, mysticism, and aestheticism. It may seem as though Paul writes only to the churches of the old, those of the first few centuries in which he lived. So far in the past is Paul's are Paul's writings really relevant to us today. We can easily see the relevance of Christ's moral law in his writings. In fact, so important are these aspects that we often cling to the moral law. Yet grasping at the importance and applicability of passages such as this may appear difficult. But each of these distortions continues today. Definitely they exist in the global church. Sometimes they exist in our own church. Sometimes they exist in our own families. We may not assert circumcision or particular foods, observance of religious feasts, but legalism is still one of the most prevailing beliefs in the Christian church, demanding outward conformity instead of inward conversion. Maybe we don't even worship angels, but mysticism can be found in the churches today, mostly in the form of portraying God as a feeling or an emotion. And we may not physically harm ourselves, but asceticism is alive and well, sometimes taking the form of false humility and victimhood. While our love for Christ may call us to sacrifice for the sake of loving others, these movements sacrifice the wrong things. Legalism sacrifices the freedom in Christ. Mysticism sacrifices the headship of Christ. And aestheticism sacrifices a sanctification in Christ. Each of them takes the good things of God and God's character and they twist them into something they are not. They act deceitfully, excuse me, they act deceitfully, teaching us things about God that aren't true. Legalism distorts God's grace and replaces it with man's efforts. Mysticism distorts God's glory and replaces it with man's experience. An aestheticism takes God's goodness and distorts it and replaces it with man's endeavors. Paul writes that the fullness of God dwells in Christ. In the previous verse, previous verse is Christ alone is sufficient, and only Christ is necessary for godliness. The false teachers have defected from this Christ, and they've turned to a life of self-sufficiency. But Paul writes to the Colossians that Christ is sufficient. Turn with me again to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 from our scripture reading this morning. I simply want to take take the time to read once again, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. there will be richly provided for you an entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is all that is necessary. He alone is the all-sufficient one. He was sufficient enough to provide for salvation. He was sufficient enough to provide for sanctification. And he was, will be sufficient enough to provide for glorification. Robert Frost writes, Two roads diverged in a wood. And I I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. There are two roads in life, the one well travelled and the one less travelled. One is a path of self and the other is a path of God. And so our two paths in life are simply this we either live by the emptiness of man or we live by the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, these are confusing times. These are times when people have obscured your word and obscured your glory and and transformed them or distorted them into things that they are not. But Father, we thank you that first you've revealed your son through Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to be confused, but rather we can be confirmed by him. And even more, you've given us your word, your truth that we can look into and, and understand and know about these, well, I guess about what is your truth and be able to see when the distortions occur, Lord. Father, forgive us when we do fall victim to those distortions. Forgive us when sometimes we are the cause of those distortions, Lord. But Father, we're thankful that indeed you are at work Regardless of what is taking place in this world, you indeed are a sovereign Lord and using this for your glory. And so, Father, we give you praise for that. Father, help us to be convicted and convinced by your truth this morning. Father, may we recognize who you are and what you've done. May we recognize the sufficiency in Christ. And Father, may we live, not in our sufficiency, but in his sufficiency. Because there are, is no other way to live lord the only path to eternal life and really the only path for this physical life is by living through your son jesus christ lord and so father i pray that you would cause us to live more in him each day and so we pray all these things in your holy and precious name amen